Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today you'll hear an interview between Kellen, myself, and David Skrbina. David was a senior lecturer in philosophy at the University of Michigan-Dearborn from 2003 to 2018. He taught a graduate course in technology and sustainability at the University of Helsinki in the fall of 2020. His areas of interest include philosophy of mind, eco-philosophy, philosophy of technology, and environmental ethics. David has written several books, including The Metaphysics of Technology and Confronting Technology which will explain further in detail his philosophy of technology. David also runs a collective called the Anti-Tech Collective for those interested in getting active in a discussion group. You can find a link to that in the description as well. In this interview, we'll talk about David's philosophy of technology, why he feels that technology is so dangerous, and what he feels the world has to do in order to avoid some catastrophic pitfalls that come from technology. We also speak to David about a book that he wrote with Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, who has a philosophy regarding technology very similar to David's. Here's the interview. All right, David, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, guys. Glad to be here. Yeah, we are really excited about this interview. So we actually, um, we had a listener of the podcast reach out to us and recommend that we speak with you and potentially have you on as a guest. And so we're really grateful to, to that listener and to you for taking the time to join us. Um, I think we have a lot of great questions that we want to ask. And, you know, Kellen and I, uh, I think we're going to agree with much of what you say. There might be some things that we're not on board with. And that's great. We love giving voices to different opinions and uh, hearing different perspectives. So with that, um, David, I wanted to just kind of start with a very basic, maybe simple question of if you were to sort of take your course or your thesis that you that you would teach and compress that into into a quick summary, I guess, what is what's the meat of that thesis? Yeah, well, so it's a skeptical course. The whole course is structured around a skeptical critique of technology. And it really does it from starting in ancient history. So it goes way back to ancient Greeks who had their very own interesting critiques of technology, as primitive as it was in 500 BC. And and we do a sort of skeptical reading through history. And then, you know, we conclude right to to the modern day pieces. We do bits by Alul. We do, uh, you know, Ted Kaczynski from the Unabomber thesis. Uh, We do, uh, you know, Rojak and and, uh, Illich and uh, and other other recent critics as well. So, you know, I guess if there was sort of the the overarching theme of the course would be like technology is a problem. 
it's bad and getting worse. And we need to take this very seriously if we want to survive in the long run. So that's, that's kind of the overarching message of the course. And we, so we, we, we look at various critics, we look at various uh, difficult arguments, uh, look at rad- various radical actions that we might do or actions that we could take. So yeah, it's, it's, it's really a very compelling, interesting course. I think the, the students loved it. It was a very popular course when I was teaching it there. So David, you mentioned technology is a problem. And I think if you were to do a poll and ask most people out there, if they think technology is a problem, they'd probably say, no, technology, it presents solutions to problems. So what are the dangers that you see inherent in technological advancements? Right. Well, so I I think a lot of people maybe have sort of a love-hate relationship, right, with technology, because a lot of people are sort of frustrated at various aspects, whether you sort of hate your cell phone or you resent being stuck on a computer and doing Zoom calls all day to, to make a living, you know, or you just really stressed out over social media stuff because you're not portraying the right image and you're feeling uh, sort of, you know, somehow inferior, you know, you hear a lot of stories about teens and, and young adults have these image problems, but they keep doing it, of course. So yeah, I think, I think probably a lot of people are very ambiguous. In fact, I think that's what the research shows that people have are highly ambiguous about technology because they're really giving, given nothing but the positive side. They're, they're sold on it as a fun thing, a cool thing. Look what you can do. Isn't this neat? Look, you can work from home, you know, you can be cool and all these nice things, but, but there's a horrible bunch of horrible downsides, you know, and it comes in a variety of concerns. There's, you know, there's personal risks. So there's physical effects on human beings when they interact with technology over time, there's mental effects on people's psyche when they interact with technology over time. And then there's psychological and even moral risks with having pervasive technology in in your life. I I spend a large part of my one book, which is uh, my book called The Metaphysics of Technology, uh, which talks about a lot of these these, uh, specific risks and dangers and looks at a lot of studies and recent research that was done. You know, I mean, to to kind of summarize it, I I, I guess, you know, you'd say, well, look, it's, it's kind of, we live in this vast technological system, which is hugely interconnected and has many components to it, which are very diverse and spread out. And it's a very diffused kind of a kind of a process that's sort of running running the show. I mean, you just think how dependent the whole system is on it, on advanced technology about energy and information flow and internet and transportation. It's a constant process of cycling energy and information in this giant network that keeps society running. And the problem is it's so giant and it's so vast that really no one really understands what it is, how it works, where it's heading, and what the real effects are both on people as individuals and on the planet. So I think when you're really pressed and you look at some of these hard questions, you say, well, look, what's it doing to people? And you see lots of negative data about, you know, depression and anxiety and stress and physical effects and, and, you know, sedentary lifestyles. And I mean, just, you know, all kinds of, you know, carpal tunnel syndrome and eye strain. I mean, just, you know, trivial things to serious things depression and anxiety and you know, attention deficit. And, and a lot of these things are being increasingly linked to, uh, to extended time interfacing with technology. Virtually every environmental problem exists because we live in an advanced technological society. I mean, you know, it's, it's chewing up the resources of the planet. It's creating waste. It's putting out greenhouse gases. That's the result of a technological process, right? The fact that we have 8 billion people on the planet is the result of advanced technology in energy, food, medicine, and healthcare that keeps the people alive and reproducing. So, I mean, this is like a catastrophe for a planet that evolved to, to hold a well under 1 billion people. I mean, there's some data that says, you know, the, the evolutionary human population should be about 100 million or maybe 50 million. And we have 8 billion. We're going to 10 billion. That's, that's an utter disaster for the planet, and that's driven by advanced technology. So if you look at almost any large-scale social problem, any large-scale environmental problem, any large-scale human health problem, these things are driven by technology. And, and uh, you know, people just don't want to either think about it. They don't want to understand it that way. They want to look past that. They want to look at the promises and the, and the vague sort of enticements that, you know, yeah, technology, okay, yeah, it's caused some problems, but of course it can solve problems too. So all we need is new medical technologies and we need cleaner fuel and we need solar cars and we need, you know, uh, wind turbines and, you know, all these nice little things. Well, that's going to solve our problems. And the problem is it never does. Things never get better. They only get worse. 
technology doesn't regress. It only progresses. It only gets stronger and more pervasive. It never solves the problems. Problems always get worse. It may solve one or two minor problems for a short term, but you know, five other problems become worse. So the net effect is always a negative a negative effect on humanity and on nature. I mean, it's a, it's a horribly damning process when you really look at it critically and you, and you look at the sum total of the effects and, and almost nobody is either willing or able to do that. That's, that's the problem. So we have a series, uh, a sub-series that we do on the podcast called Can Technology Save Us? And we talk about all the different issues that we're facing uh, in our modern societies. And we go through different types of technologies that people throw out there as, as what can save us. And the answer is always no, uh, technology will not save us. But it's interesting because you've mentioned a couple problems with technology here. It seems like the main ones that you focused on were kind of that it goes against our human evolution. Our minds are not meant to be engaged in technology in the way that we have uh, inundated our lives with it. Um, second, you talked about environmental impacts and all the issues that we're having with climate change, which, of course, I agree with wholeheartedly. Um, but I have heard you mention um, in other posts and, and things that you fear that technology will actually ultimately or could lead to our destruction. And I'm curious, um, I have my own thoughts on that. And mine, I think, mostly come off of what you just mentioned, which is that the only reason we have 8 billion people is through technology. I don't think that technology is sustainable. I don't think that the energy required to run the technology that we have is sustainable. Eventually that runs out. And those 8 billion people that rely on technology that no longer exists, um, that's a huge problem for the planet. It's pretty much the entire thesis of our podcast breaking down collapse and why we'll collapse. Right. Is that your view of the future of technology or why do you think that technology will lead to destruction? Yeah, so it's a combination of factors, right? So uh, we're driven largely by fossil fuels. Uh, as we know, fossil fuels are, are actually hard to get now, hard to access. They're increasingly hard to access, and they will get increasingly harder to access in the future. When we burn them, we create the carbon uh, di uh, dioxide, the greenhouse gases, which, which uh, worsens the climatary, uh, planetary climate situation. So yeah, so sort of on both ends, we're going to run out of fuel because probably within 100 years, uh, the fossil fuel simply will not be accessible. So as it gets harder to get to the coal and get to the oil, it takes energy to get to those things. At some point, it's going to take more energy to get to the oil than to get out of the oil. And then you're in a deficit spending mode and then, then you're in a spiral collapse. So uh, and we're uh, I think we're rapidly getting to that point. Our returns are used to be very high because it used to be very easy. It took almost no energy to scoop oil off puddles of the ground and to scrape it off, you know, just below the surface of the, of the earth. And now when you're having to dig down and blow up mountains and, you know, go deep sea wells, um, the, 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 the ratio of the return to the investment is getting poorer by the day. So, so not only will the fossil fuels run out, that ratio will, will collapse. And, and there's a lot of data that says once that ratio gets beyond a certain threshold, basically civilization collapses because civilization requires uh, relatively high access to, to energy sources. And if they're not available, then the civilization that's based on those energy sources will collapse. Other scenarios, if everything sort of goes okay for a while, which is actually probably worse because technology will increase at an accelerating exponential rate, which it is doing right now. And then, and then we're sort of racing full, full bore towards things like the, the old singularity. So if you talk about the singularity, right, if you read Ray Kurzweil and you know that, 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 that the, basically the power of uh, computing power of computers in general uh, different ways to measure it, but it's but it's rapidly increasing, exponentially increasing, um, and there's a point at which it will sort of because it's following a kind of an exponential curve. It's it's actually heading up uh, to uh, and approaching an asymptotic limit of in infinity, infinite computing power in a finite period of time. So this yeah. is sort of the singularity point, right? And, and uh, Kurzweil has been tracking the data. He says it's coming in 2045. So that's about 20, about 20 years away. And uh, at that point, you know, if we if we able to manage to get through the next 20 years without any major crises, you know, you can imagine uh, yeah, all kinds of nightmare scenarios of, of in functionally infinitely powerful computing systems, networks, Internet, whatever, 
you know, just things that we absolutely do not uh, understand. We can't anticipate the, the consequences, the things that could be, you know, you become, it's like science fiction at that point. I mean, these things kind of basically start functioning on their own. I don't know if, you know, that it's going to be quite some killer cyborgs, but, you know, uh, the, the system could just off run on its own and it's just, it's just doing things. And we're like, well, we don't know what's going on. We can't stop it. We don't know why this is happening. So that's another whole set of scenarios of disaster. And there's a th- sort of a third set where people maliciously use advanced technology and they create say you know oh let's say like a covid virus you know in a lab and it's really nasty it's not like the covid one which just sort of makes most people sick it could be like horribly like 99% fatal and somebody gets releases that sucker or gets out of a lab and then there goes 99% of humanity um so that's entirely possible so you could have terrorist acts you could have accidents in labs you could have you know just collapse of the global food system you 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 could make a career out of documenting the nightmare scenarios that are coming in just the next two or three decades. So David, it sounds like you're not excited about the thought of uploading your consciousness into the cloud. <laughs> yeah, that won't be happening uh, <laughs> over dead, my dead body, baby. Yeah, uh, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, no, 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 none of those, the, those are all, those are all losers because that, that ain't going to happen. I mean, you know, you, you may be able to duplicate some aspects of your thinking processes, but, uh, you know, saving yourself for Im- immortality by put, putting yourself on a flash drive, you know, uh, that, 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 that won't be happening. Um, any system that's powerful enough to actually do that would be so powerful. It would, it would have zero interest in maintaining you as a, as an entity, and it would just press the delete button and poof, there you go. You know, so there's there's absolutely no reason to think you could you could maintain or control yourself in a system that would be, be that powerful. So, yeah, all all the little rosy Kurzweil scenarios, you know, just to sort of collapse into absurdity when you think about what's what's required to make them happen. So when I think of technology, I think of basically any advancement. You know, when somebody grabs a stick and uses it to pry up a rock, right? That, that can be defined as a form of technology. Often, modern society, it seems like when we think of technology, we're thinking primarily of digital technology, cell phones and computers. Obviously, there's all the medical advancements and agricultural advancements. And there's, there's so many things that we could point to as technology. What do we leave and what do we take? If it was an ideal scenario, how far do we go back? Are we talking like Renaissance period? Are we talking hunter-gatherers? What's your thought on that? Yeah, right. So, right. That's a really good question because, you know, and and in fact, I emphasize in my courses that it's really not a question of doing without technology. That's not really a question because it's all, it's basically impossible to do that. Uh, As you said, you just use a stick or a stone. I mean, we have evidence of stone hand tools that are two and a half million years old. They're as old as human beings themselves. So, I mean, we never did without a sharpened stone to, to, to cut something or to chop up an animal or a plant or whatever they were doing. So it's not really a question of no technology. That's not really even, even an option. So, so you're right. So we tend to talk about, you know, modern technology as maybe being a problem. And then, so what do we mean by modern and what are the, what are the thresholds and so forth? Um, so it's an interesting sort of question. You know, a lot of philosophers will point to like the steam engine. And say, well, look, once a steam engine came around in the in the early phase of the Industrial Revolution, well, that was kind of a game changer. And that, you know, we started driving those things with oil and then, you know, whatever, that's kind of fossil fuel driven engine. Then you could fa- mechanize a factory and, you know, drive, make us locomotives drive across the land. And so those were those were certainly I mean, steam engines were certainly a, a, a signal event. But it was, it's just really one step in a long process, right, that, that reaches back for, you know, centuries or millennia. So if you say the question, well, look, what, what's sustainable? How, where, where should we be heading if we were smart about this? I guess some things are obvious. So uh, for one thing, it seems obvious that you cannot uh, use fossil fuel in, in any, any way, shape or form. You can't access it. It's going away. It's polluting. It's deadly. Uh, so fossil fuels have to go. So you have to consider your uh, society based on pre fossil fuels. So that would be pre-industrial revolution. I, I myself have argued for even even sort of simpler technologies, uh, actually sort of, let's say, Renaissance era technologies. Uh, I was always pretty impressed with uh, Lewis Mumford, who was quite a technology critic himself. He's an interesting guy. You should read some books by Mumford if you, if you get a chance. And Mumford said that the decisive uh, invention of the modern age was not the steam engine, it was the mechanical clock. And when we, when we had a mechanical clock that started mechanically measuring time, 
you know, not a sundial. This is mechanically a wheel-driven clock. And this happened in about the year 1300. Mumford made a good point. He said, well, that's really what, that's what organized society. Society got organized on this mechanical clock. And now there was set time and we measured hours and minutes and seconds. And everybody knew everybody's locked into the same time schedule and so forth. And I, I, I think that's a pretty good case. And I've sort of argued if you really want to be a sustainable, but still flourishing and, and still, let's say, happy human existence, you probably need to go something equivalently well well back before the Industrial Revolution, maybe 1300, 1400, this early Renaissance level of technology, which, which allows for a high level of cultural ach- achievement, which they obviously could achieve in the Renaissance, um, but it's probably sustainable because there's no fossil fuels, there's no electricity. Uh, it's just human power and, you know, s- small amounts of animal power. And that's what drove your society. And that's, that's probably a sustainable model for the, for the future. So do you advocate going back to that then, finding a way forward that eliminates technology, the technologies you've spoken about, and takes us back to something more akin to, to the Renaissance? It, yes, exactly. Uh, so I, I give it a name. I call it Creative Reconstruction. And it's in my book, Metaphysics of Technology. And I published a piece recently in Oxford University Press book that was the same title. But yeah, basically sort of sort of unwinding. Uh, it's like running the film in reverse, unwinding the film of the last, say, 700 years or 800 years. Just just, just unwind it. Just, just go backwards. Just instead of introducing these technologies, retract them. Do a plan over time where we're going to gradually retract and just we could do it in reverse order if we want to. Just pull things back out of existence, you know, ban them or destroy them or whatever we have to do. Pull them out of existence to gradually wind yourself back over a long period of time, which is sort of the key because people think, well, oh, my God, I'm going to suddenly be living in a cave tomorrow. I mean, that's ridiculous. So, in fact, in my book, I argued for for like 100 years. Take a long term plan. Do it over 100 years so that, you know, where you get to that simple life, nobody today will be alive. You don't have to worry about that, right? You don't have to worry about what's going to be happening in 100 years because none of us are going to be around then. But just do a long-term plan. Do it relatively slowly, relatively gradually. If you if you started now and you moved in the right direction and you did it systematically and methodically, uh, you could get there. In, in 100 years, it would be relatively easy, relatively painless because it would be a slow process. And, and I think that that is at least one viable model to get us to where we need to be. So what you're advocating there and sort of your idea around this creative reconstruction sounds a lot like the degrowth movement. Um, are you familiar with the concept of degrowth? Yep, or the absolutely. Degrowth movement? Yep, okay. Yep. So I, would you agree that there's a lot of parallels kind of between them? It seems like degrowth is more talking from an economic standpoint, decoupling exactly. GDP. It's right. It's, it's right. It's a technological degrowth in a sense, right? Uh, degrowth wants to shrink e- economic throughput and, and lower consumption levels. So sort of bring them down to sustainable levels. And it's a similar sort of thing in technology that I'm arguing for. So, sort, of, sort of instead of having accelerating runaway technology, de- degrow the technology, shrink it, pull it back out of existence and get it back down to a sustainable level. So yeah, there are some interesting parallels there for sure. So there are a lot of questions that I have around this because yeah. obviously the, the practicality of this, yeah. it's just such an enormous task, right? It's a big ask. Um, so I have a, I have a few questions around yeah. it. Um, one is that, like you mentioned earlier, uh, and like I had said, we we kind of both agreed that we rely on technology for our current to sustain our current population levels. Right. So without technology, maybe we'd be around fifty million or hundred million, or maybe we'd hit five hundred million. But we're at eight billion. So over the course of a hundred years, do you sort of see that population receding all the way back to that? And do you foresee a lot of um, I guess early death <laughs> occurring because uh, because of a, a loss of technology. Yeah. No, no, you're right. Absolutely right. Uh, the population has to go down. There's there's no no two ways about it. Uh, the current level is a disaster. It's going up to 10 billion. That will be a mega disaster. So the population globally has to go down. It has to go down. I, you know, I've done some calculations based on ecological footprint. For example, it's kind of interesting. Um, there's some reason to think that maybe we could live with two billion people on the planet. I mean, to me, that's like sort of an absolute upper limit, you know, uh, pro- probably got to shoot for under 1 billion uh, and maybe, maybe it's got to be even below that. You kind of have to see how things go at that point. But, but yeah, there's absolutely no way to avoid it. When technology becomes simpler, 
as it's going to, because we're going to lose our fossil fuels, um, we have to have fewer people. In, in my proposal, where you're doing it slowly and rationally, then basically it's relatively painless in the sense that no, let's say nobody has to die, right? Because, because you can more or less live out your life in your normal conditions um, without feeling an immediate personal effect because we're spreading the change over 100 years. If, if we hit our nightmare scenarios, if we could hit a collapse scenario where, where it's relatively rapid, well, then that's terrible because then you're going to have billions of people die very quickly. Um, it'll, it'll be like the Black Death times, times a thousand. So, I mean, you, you won't even know what to do with the dead bodies. There'll be so many people that will be dead. So um, I think maybe that sort of horror scenario um, might, might work to shock people into thinking, well, look, if we did this like slowly, we could sort of plan the, the, the degrowth of the population to parallel the degrowth of the technology, and we could, we could run them in parallel, and we could get to where we need to be in 100 years, and it would be, like I said, rel- relatively painless process. You know, in all of this, when you talk about the degrowth movement, when you talk about uh, pulling back from fossil fuels or, or kind of retracting any of our technological advancements, I'm sure you've had these decades to see just how challenging it is to get people on board, um, to give up luxuries and comforts in the short term for, you know, sacrificing so that we can have a better long term. Um, I know at one point, you had said that society needed like a big wake up call to open up our eyes to our predicament. Um, But but that was before COVID-19 hit. And so I'm curious, has your opinion changed since the pandemic? And, and do you feel disappointed in the way that society responded to such a big alarming event that some would have categorized as a wake-up call? Yeah, I, I think it, it, well, it definitely is a wake-up call. It's COVID uh, pandemic is, is a technological disaster because we don't, we don't know where the virus came from. There's, you know, reason to think it came out of a lab. Maybe it was just studied in the lab and got out. Maybe it was engineered in the lab. In any case, there was a lab, which labs are very high tech and that lab would not exist if it wasn't for high technology. Uh, it spread in a highly dense China and then a dense world. A world without uh, 8 billion people is not dense enough to sustain a pandemic. Uh, in the ancient world, you never had a pandemic because you're hunter-gatherers and you didn't, you didn't interact with enough people to actually have a pandemic, so you didn't have to worry about that. Uh, and it spreads so fast because it got people on jet planes who are flying around the globe in a matter of hours, and so you have lightning speed movement of these uh, pathogens. So every way you look, and, and, the, and the cure is a, is a high-tech vaccine. I mean, every way, every aspect of COVID from the from the source to the promotion to the to the solution is a technological uh, mess, basically. So it's 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 a small shot over the bow. That's kind of how I've been portraying it. I mean, when you look at what happened in COVID, the, the, the death figures in total are relatively small. I don't know what the global death totals are, but it's but it did nothing to dent global population. People are like thinking, oh, my God, this is horrible. All these people dying. But people are dying all the time. There's we have. In the U.S., we, we have like 8,000 people die every day just, just from old age and accidents and suicide and, you know, everything else that people die from. So we have huge numbers of deaths. COVID was just a little tiny blip on, on top of the normal death rate. Um, so COVID was sort of a warning shot over the bow, but it was very mild. People panicked, but it, it could easily have been much, much, much worse if, if the fatality rate had been, you know, uh, couple of factors higher, you know, it could have been a lot worse. It, it could have easily, it could have been hugely worse. I mean, the next pandemic, God knows what's going to, what's going to happen. If it's, if it's a really fatal disease, I mean, you could end up with, you know, 50% death rate, be like, a, a, again, a disaster. There is value in these, in these, um, in these warnings that come in terms of technological disasters. Uh, I think we missed the boat with COVID because people do not see it as a technological disaster. They just think it's, well, you know, it's either came from, uh, you know, bats or animals in the jungle or, you know, just an accidental thing or it's just like one of those germs that comes around. So nobody really connects the idea, which is one thing I've been trying to do is to really is to really make people understand that it's a technological problem. And the next crisis that comes along could be a next pandemic, could be next uh, genetically engineered, God knows what. Um, you know, c- could be and probably will be much worse. Um, so, um, and and we need to we need to realize that we, we we cannot stop these things. In a world of eight billion people moving on high speed uh, transportation systems, uh, 
uh, we're completely vulnerable, 100% vulnerable to these things, and we can do absolutely nothing about it except uh, except we're gonna we're gonna die. So um, <clears throat> so a pandemic is just one of about 86 different disaster scenarios. Um, that are technological disaster scenarios. And I think it will take, you know, like I say, COVID was a small shot. It will probably take a bigger shot. And I, I, what I, I guess what I'm sort of hoping, I, I hate to say that I'm hoping for a disaster, but I'm hoping for a minor disaster that's, that's strong enough that really slaps people in the face to get them to realize that this is the result of a technological system, which we cannot control. And, and by God, we have to do something about the technology. Otherwise, we're going to get wiped out. So it's, it's almost like it's going to take, uh, you know, a, a, a big catastrophe of, you know, hundreds of millions of people dying. And then you'll say, oh, well, shoot, we can't have that happen again. And we're totally vulnerable to this thing. Well, I guess we're going to start getting rid of biolabs or get rid of, you know, nanotechnology. And we're going to stop this robotics research because that's just too dangerous. And then, you know, you start going on a list and now now you're on your way to unwinding the technological system. I think one of the biggest pieces of all of this, and and you can explain this a little bit, but for this to happen, there has to be a widespread sort of global consensus, right? Or some sort of universal authoritarian takeover to require this to happen. But when it comes to a global consensus, I think of COVID and I think of just the struggle that we had, you know, in coming to agreements on how to treat the pandemic. Do we wear masks? Do we get vaccinated? You know, and and the amount of discord that came out and polarization from that, it makes this type of a proposal seem just so unrealistic, simply from a state of coming to it, that consensus. Right. Absolutely will not be easy. Uh, the, the only thing I think that will drive, because it requires too much rational foresight, which does not work good for governments and masses of people, um, uh, that's what I was going to say. It's going to take a, take a shock to the system, and and people are going to have to realize we're, we're faced with uh, you know like th- three doors, and and doors one is instant death, and one is mass death, and one is like total death. I mean, so so you're going to face with you know three or four hor- horrendous catastrophe, you know, ter- terrible outcomes because that's what technology does. It puts you in a corner where you're faced with nothing but bad options. And then people are going to say, well, shoot, if that's the case, then maybe maybe we can actually live without some of this technology because all the other doors, all the other options are really disastrous. I don't know. I mean, this never there's no precedent. We've never seen this happen before. We have no really way to know how this is going to happen, how, what it would take to get there. You know, is it, is it like a global, is it like a UN kind of thing? And they sit down and say, we need some kind of, you know, D-tech committee and we bring a bunch of experts to I, we just don't know how it's going to go because it's never nothing like this has ever happened before but but i i i'm quite confident that that in our in our lifetime let's say in the next couple of decades we'll, we'll be uh, we will uh, realize that we're faced with uh, terrible options and that the d tech course may be the least terrible the least bad and i would argue that's actually not such a bad thing there's actually a lot of benefits to going that way and then we can start to play up the benefits and the advantages of regaining a healthy lifestyle and sort of a sane sort of existence and you don't have to be on 24 7 and you know you actually get time to think and you get time to sleep and all these kind of nice little things so i mean it's actually it can actually be portrayed as actually a very positive option even though people, you know, in the face of things, oh, my God, I can't do without my cell phone. I can't go without air conditioning and, you know, the, all these silly things that people will say. And, well, I need my car. And, you know, yeah, actually, you don't because people live without cars for, you know, about two million years. And now you think you have to have one. That's ridiculous. Yeah, I, I, you know, pe- people have to be confronted with uh, the increasingly bad options. And that will just drive them. The logic will drive them into a corner where they're like, well, shit, we got to have to look at D-Tech because otherwise there are these other ones that are going to be terrible. You know, I think of maybe these are kind of silly examples, but like, let's say my wife is sick and there's some medical advancement that can save her life. In a situation like that, I would think I would always choose that option. You know, or you think about like a small business owner who's trying to compete against other small businesses. And if he or she has the ability to use fossil fuels and others don't, they're going to have a huge advantage. You think about us right now, you know, you have mentioned all the dangers and problems with technology, but here we are on a Zoom call and and we're using technology all the time because we are kind of addicted to the upside of it. So do you feel like there's any way to decouple 
the upsides from the downsides? Is there any way to still take yeah. advantage of so many of the positive sides of technology and, and maybe put some restrictions in place or put some of this technological retraction in place that you talked about that would yeah. allow us to stay away from the negatives? Yeah, that, that's an old argument, right? And it's, and it's called, um, why, why can't we just keep the good stuff and get rid of the bad stuff, right? Why, why can't we just keep the good parts of technology and get rid of the bad parts? And why can't we just do that? I mean, it seems like it should be obvious. Well, let's just find the problems, get rid of the problems, get rid of the toxic waste, get rid of the, you know, the hazardous chemicals and whatever. Just get rid of those, ban those, but keep all the good stuff. And the problem is it never, ever works. And this has been analysis of going back. Alul recognized this. He wrote in 1954. Okay, so we're talking like 70 years ago, uh, much simpler time than today, relatively speaking. And, and they say, well, look, the, the whole system is a big interconnected mesh network, right? And you can't just pull up this little piece and that little piece and then say, well, look, the rest of the thing's going to hang together because it doesn't hang together. The whole system requires all the parts to it. So it's just, it's functionally, on the one hand, functionally impossible just to go through and plink out the bad parts and just keep the good parts because the system will recreate or fill in those gaps. If you knock something out, it requires those for the whole network to function the way that it does. So functionally speaking, it's impossible. Practically speaking and empirically speaking, if we look at when did we actually ever do that? When did we actually actually sort of get rid of the bad parts and keep the good parts? And we've never really been able to do that. We have really no models for success. We have no reason to believe that will ever actually work. Even though it sounds on the face of it, it sounds nice and easy. Well, we'll just do it this way. We'll just keep the things we like and get rid of the others. But pragmatically, theoretically, empirically, there's we have no evidence that actually shows us that that will actually that will actually work. So that's that's the problem. You know, you're right. You point to people who are sick and they need, you know, chemo treatment for their cancer or something. Right. You say, well, look, I, I can't do without that. Or I'm going to give up some competitive advantage. Well, I can't I can't do that because I'll go out of business. Right. I mean, you, you, you sort of have to tackle things at a systemic level. Some arguments that I said, well, look, if some nation takes the lead on this and starts to detectify. Well, they're going to be militarily weaker than an opponent who doesn't do that. And so they're just going to come in and blow the hell out of you guys. And then you're going to die because you got taken off. Well, okay. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I suppose there's some scenarios where that's a potential potential issue. Ideally, you'd like to be able to coordinate these kind of things, right? I mean, we have that's why we have global organizations. That's why you have the UN. I don't want to rely on the UN. But, I mean, there are reasons why, why you try to prevent, you know, stronger powers from obliterating weaker powers and we have that problem today and sometimes we succeed sometimes not but but uh uh but yeah both personally and organizationally right we have to understand that you know these are sort of required for the long-term survival uh, of humanity even the things that we think are the good things end up being bad things frequently so you want to say well look, you know whatever it I don't, you have to pick what you're, you know, if I got some chemotherapy treatment because I have some high-tech medicine thing that, that cures my cancer, you say, well, wait a minute. Why do people have cancer? Cancer is actually a very new disease. It, it really came about in the, really in the time of the Industrial Revolution. Cancer is a technological disease. It's caused by technology. So don't tell me you need chemotherapy or x-ray treatment to treat your cancer because the system gave you that cancer. And now don't tell me you need technology to cure your cancer that the system gave to you. That's bullshit. That doesn't work. That's a circular argument, which doesn't fly. So even the good things, the good things that keep people somehow alive are really curing problems that they themselves have solved. And you don't get credit for that. Or it's leading to worse things. It's like it's like letting people survive uh, and, and, and multiply who maybe, you know, nature would have weeded people out along the way. But we don't now. Everybody survives. Everybody reproduces. So the population goes up. The genetic uh, fitness of populations actually declines in technological societies because everybody survives, relatively speaking, and nature doesn't like that. Nature likes to weed, weed organisms out, the weaker and the less fit. That's how nature works. No, no, we don't do that. Everybody survives. Every baby survives. Every person survives to reproductive age and passes on their genes. And that's genetically a disaster for the society. So even the things that we like to portray as the good things when you look at them in the long term, often turn out to be bad things, disastrous things. So this argument of keeping the good and getting the bad, it, it fails on multiple levels when you really when you really try to look at it deeply. I think back to the past and I think of 
you know, at what point did we screw this all up? What, at what point did we cross the technological threshold that we shouldn't have that has led to, to, you know, this unsustainability? And who knows really when that was? Some people argue that it was at the agricultural revolution, you know, the advent of, of cities, of urbanization. Some say it would be till later on with, um, you know, in the 1920s and 1950s with an, and times of industrial revolution earlier than that. So anyway, there's there's lots of opinions on that. And I... I think, you know, I agree with what you're saying in regards to technology is a problem. That's the premise of our podcast. I, also, the premise of our podcast is that we're not going to avoid it. <laughs> you know, we our, our thesis is we're going to collapse. The solutions that you're presenting, uh, again, that I find parallels with, um, with degrowth, I love the ideas of them. I love the thought of a future in which we find a sustainable level to live in. I don't know that I have high confidence that we'll reach that without experiencing a full collapse first, but I, I appreciate the viewpoint and I love hearing the, the different ideas and, and the philosophy behind it. Maybe to end here, um, I wanted to ask you a couple questions. Um, maybe some of our listeners are familiar with you and your work. If they're not, maybe they'll go and, and Google you after this conversation. I hope they do. And if they do, one of the first things they're likely to see is that you have a relationship to some degree with Ted Kaczynski, who was the Unabomber. If our listeners are familiar with the Unabomber, he had uh, he released a manifesto. He had a philosophy that I'm not super like intimately familiar with, but I believe it's along the same lines as what you've been discussing here. So maybe I'd like to hear a little bit about your relationship with with Ted and um, what is his philosophy and how does it differ from yours? Yeah, so it's an interesting story in it, in itself. Um, like I said, I was t- tech skeptical, tech critical for for many years, going back to my uh, like undergrad days. So I was really interested. Come come the early '90s when the Unabomber story started hitting the news, and and all you knew is there was a guy who was sending mail bombs for many years. Somebody was sending mail bombs, and people were getting injured, and then somebody got killed, and somebody else got killed, and okay, it was a big deal. Yeah. Um, you don't really give that stuff much thought and, until it came out that this, this the bomber actually had a ideology of anti-technology and wanted to publish something in exchange for stopping sending the bombs. This was the premise. Um, and, and, and then it started getting real interesting because then little excerpts from this person's writings would show up in the New York Times. And this was 92, 93 timeframe, um, 94, um, I guess. And it was really interesting. I mean, re, re, just they would read just little paragraphs, a couple sentences or a paragraph was really interesting. Well written, intelligent, good arguments, arguments against technology, against the industrial system. And it's like, wow, this is really kind of interesting. Um, so I was following it re, really closely back then. Um, uh, then, you know, the, the, the deal was to get to publish this manifesto. And eventually the government caved in to the blackmail which really what it was. And, and uh, Bill Clinton had to do this. He agreed to publish this manifesto to try to, to try to make a deal where it would get this Unabomber guy to stop sending these bombs. And that maybe somebody would read the manifesto and get some clues and find out who the guy was. Um, so, yeah, so this was uh, November, 1990, uh, sorry, se- September, 1995, uh, that the, the manifesto was published uh, a huge document It's called industrial society in the future. You can look it up online. It's posted online. Um, you can read sort of the official public version in the book, Technological Slavery, if you look that one up, uh, by Ted Kaczynski. Um, re- it was really, I remember reading it, it a really fascinating manifesto. I recognized immediately a lot of connections to, to Jacques Ellul, even though Ellul was not mentioned, but I could see a lot of connections there. That turned out to be the case. Early on, just following the manifesto, when it came out, eventually, of course, it did did produce some clues The Kaczynski's brother recognized the writings, sent the FBI to his brother, Ted, and they arrested Ted, and that's how they caught him. So about six, what, six months later, eight months later, they, they arrested Ted Kaczynski, and they found him in this cabin in Montana, and he was the guy who was sending the bombs and writing the manifesto. They, they tried, they wanted to put him on a death penalty. There's a big circus with the trial. They ended up putting him in life in prison. So that's actually where he is today. He's life in prison in, in Colorado, formally speaking. But when I was developing the course uh, for philosophy of technology in about 2003, I wanted to include both some of the excerpts from the manifesto because it was current and it was relevant. And I was curious what else had been going on because he had been in jail for five, six years at this point, and he didn't hear anything. He didn't know what was going on. So I decided to write him a letter and just sort of ask him, you know, like, 
just introduced myself. Hey, I'm a professor at the University of Michigan, which was actually his university. That's where he got his PhD from, the same university. Um, and I said, hey, I'm, I'm putting a course together and I want to use some of your material. Just wondering what's what you've been thinking in the last you know, five, six years. I uh, didn't expect any answers, but uh, so I was really surprised uh, about three weeks later, I got a nice handwritten letter from him. And, uh, and uh, you know, it started off a, sort of a back and forth. And we started going to like just a letter writing campaign, writing letters, asking questions. What do you think about this? And he gave me some long answers. Have you been writing anything while you've been in prison? Yes, he had. He would send me copies of unpublished essays that he had written in prison. So it was really an interesting development, how that, how that whole process uh, went about. Um, eventually, we had enough material that I suggested that he publish it as a book. And that's what became this book, Technological Slavery. And so it took a while, took a couple of years. In the end, it was 2010. We had the first version really published in the U.S. Uh, I ended up writing the introduction to the book. So if you get the original 2010 uh, edition, it's got introduction by David Scribina right on the cover there. So, so, so yeah, I guess sort of without really trying, I ended up being quite involved in this first book project, really just because I thought he had valid arguments. He had really good, it was a very harsh case against technology based on arguments like Elul. His conclusion was a very radical conclusion. He said, we have to collapse the system now because every day that the system survives is another day that things will get worse and the system gets bigger and stronger. And when it collapses, it's going to just, it's, it's going to be like the bigger they are, the harder they fall. So the best case is to make it collapse now. So therefore, anybody who's really concerned about the future of humanity and the planet will work today to bring the system down, collapse it as soon as possible by whatever means necessary. And this was basically Kaczynski's thesis. So it was really radical, radical, revolutionary thesis against technology. Um, logically, it's a solid argument. It's a sound argument. There are good reasons to think, indeed, that may be the best course of action. I myself am trying to take a little bit more, let's say, restrained version where I'm trying to extend the breakdown over time, over a long period of time, to sort of get to an intermediate level. Kaczynski's like, no, no, we need to bring it down right right to the ground right now. So it's been an interesting debate. You know, he and I exchanged many letters, uh, well over uh, pushing 200 letters, I think, over over the years. And uh, yeah, so I've given several speeches and gone to conferences and sort of kind of defended his case because he does make a very strong case. Like I say, I don't completely agree with his conclusions, but he does make a very strong case. And it, and it really... It really puts the, the public eye in sort of a very dramatic way because of the bombing campaign. It puts a lot of sort of you know, attention on the question of technological society and what to do about it. So it, really, it was really a very fascinating case. And, and I think it was very useful because of the publicity that it brought to the topic that allowed us to talk about the topic in, in a kind of a meaningful way as much as we possibly could. I think this brings up a lot of questions perhaps around morality of using uh, Ted Kaczynski's uh, fame and how he earned that fame to raise this issue. So, you know, you think about what Ted did and his crimes and, and how atrocious they were. Obviously, we don't condone that. I don't believe you condone that uh, and, what, and what he did. Do you find yourself fighting internal battles around elevating his voice and his thesis when the way that he did that was by murdering innocent people? Well, so we have to keep things in, in perspective. Uh, he killed three people. The bombs injured something like 20, 22 people and killed three people. If technology continues the way it's proceeding and we hit a disaster scenario, we'll have three billion people dead easily. So if we're weighing the, the issues and we're worried about three people were killed uh, 20 years ago and the prospect of three billion people dying in the next few decades to, to me, that's that's not even that's that's a, that's a joke. It's not even worth w worrying about that. Yeah, okay, we we're sorry about the three people. Yes, we don't condone it, but okay. But we're looking at three billion people dying, and if we don't talk seriously about it, uh, and we push this stuff to aside because we're afraid about the the way that it looks, because we don't like talking about this guy who did some bad things, then then we're just shooting ourselves in both feet and both arms, and and we're just too stupid to 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 deserve to survive at that point. So we have to be able to separate the crimes the decades old crimes from the future that we are all facing. And we can take the arguments, we can separate the arguments from the crimes and they are completely separate. There's nothing about the manifesto that talks about bombing requires bombing or killing anybody or any of that. So that's completely separate. We can take the manifesto, take the occasion of the, uh, of, of the, of this man's life and use it to talk about these very 
serious issues in, in a serious way. If we choose to ignore it, we're only harming ourselves, we're harming our children, we're harming our grandchildren, uh, potentially all of life on the planet. So, so uh, yeah, it's a little bit distasteful. I guess I'm not happy about it, but it's, but it's, but it's a joke to say, well, that's, that's an excuse why we shouldn't even talk about this guy. It's, it's, it's an absolute joke to even raise that argument personally. Is there anything about Ted Kaczynski that is outstanding or unique, unique about him? I suppose it's worth gathering his thoughts on the manifesto besides the fact that he committed those crimes. That's why we all know him. That's why his voice is elevated. Are there other people who might be better to speak to about it than him, crimes aside? Right. Um, Well, yes and no. I mean, there's... For, for one, he is unique because he drove the argument to the logical conclusion, which is the system has to end. Uh, a few people had suggested that. So Lewis Mumford and a couple of passages and, you know, buried deep in his books kind of suggested, yeah, the system kind of has to end. And Ivan Illich talked about uh, inversion of the system, which was a kind of revolution thing. And Herbert Marcuse did some kind of stuff about how we kind of need to revolt in very vague sort of ways. So a few people did, but almost nobody drove the argument to the logical conclusion, which Kaczynski did, which is the system is going to destroy us. It has to end. It's got to end now. Uh, that's the only logical path. So so I think he, he deserves credit for, for taking it an unconditionally uh, harsh logic to the argument and pressing it full bore right to the logical conclusion and not caring what the logical conclusion is. He's just following the logic and the logic says the system has to end. And there is some valid logic behind that argument. That's one thing. The second thing is there actually are very few real critics of technology today at all. I mean, I struggle. People ask me, you know, well, so who's making these arguments? Who, who would you suggest that I read? I can't even come up with any names. I can't even give people any names of, of serious thinkers, philosophers, or social critics, or sociologists, or whatever. I can't even think of the names of people to point you to, to say, well, look, here's 10 other people, and they're talking seriously about technology, too. No, nobody. Zero. Zilch. There's no one. I'm doing it couple of the people that I work with and you know and then you're going back to Kaczynski and you're going back to Skalamowski and I mean that's like it so it's 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 really it's absolutely appalling that there's such a, such a, an absence of serious technology critics today it's it's just it's just revolting I, I I have a hard time explaining it I even feel stupid even trying to tell people look there's just nobody who's willing to do this today um and and it's that I mean that's that's I have to like probably write a book by, on that, that topic alone. Why in the age when technology is the greatest threat to our existence, do we have nobody who's really seriously uh, challenging the system? And that, that's a huge question, which probably has complex answers. And, you know, that, like I said, that deserves a book in itself. Well, I think just in these last few minutes, some really interesting questions and points are brought up. You know, the, the idea, do the ends justify the means? what kind of sacrifice is worth getting a point out there. I think of Ted Kaczynski and I haven't read his manifesto. I know it's a logical fallacy to discredit an idea simply based on the the, the person who presented the idea, right? You want to look at any sort of an argument based on the credits of that argument. But I guess I wonder, probably one of the reasons why somebody like me hasn't gone and read that is because in my mind, I think of what he did, and it's hard not to put him in the category of some sort of an extremist, and I would steer away from diving into his his thoughts. Do you feel like his actions helped or hurt the cause that you're behind? Well, as he said himself, <clears throat> if he did not commit these crimes, he would never have had the notoriety to publish the manifesto in a high visibility venue, which it was published in the Washington Post, one of the top papers in the country, Uh, something like 1.2 million copies of the newspaper were sold that day that they published the manifesto. Even to this day, that's an all-time record for a single day newspaper sales was the day the Unabomber manifesto was published, 1.2 1.2 million copies never been, been equaled for any other newspaper sales for a single day. So, so like it or not, that's the only way that anyone would have heard about this sort of this, this really, you know, serious and compelling thesis. Otherwise, you know, to, and I think there's some, maybe in one letter or something, Kaczynski says, you know, if I just been a standard academic, he was a math professor, he was teaching at Berkeley. He could have kept teaching at Berkeley. He could have published something like a manifesto in some technology journal, you know, eight guys would have read it and then it would have gotten forgotten. 
And that was it. So he, his, he's an activist. He's not an, he's not an academician. He wants to change things. He says for the better and arguably it is for the better. And, 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 you, and, and, and to, to be an activist, you have to take extreme action. I mean, I mean, that's obvious. It goes back to, you know, every revolutionary history and Karl Marx and, you know, I mean, anybody going back to, to whoever these guys took far bloodier action on behalf of their causes than Ted, Ted Kaczynski ever did. So let's, let's not blame him. Let's look at every, you're going to blame him. We'll blame every revolutionary history, including our own revolutionary guys who we love our guys so much. Well, they mowed down British soldiers like, like crazy and nobody's worried about those guys. Oh no. Well, but we love those guys. Right. So it's all about your cause and who, who won the, the thing in the end. Right. So. Yeah. And I, I think it's interesting because definitely he got more publicity uh, and you mentioned all the newspaper sales that day these ideas got out there. On the other hand, I hear you talk about how nobody other than yourself and a few others are really talking about these ideas seriously. So it's hard to know if that's a measure for success in terms of what he was hoping to accomplish. Well, yeah, I I mean, it could be that we're just all wrong. Could be that Ted's wrong and I'm wrong and Alul's wrong and Skullmo's, and we could be wrong. Uh, You know, maybe things will iron themselves out and we'll just have a hunky-dory future. Could be. But the evidence of the last 100 years at least says, no, that's not the case. Now, suddenly we can, well, we can make a miraculous U-turn and suddenly everybody gets smart and they stop doing stupid things and they stop building atomic bombs. and They stop doing genetically engineered organisms and they and they rain back uh, artificial intelligence and they stop doing nanotech and they stop making robotics because they realize that, you know, and they just suddenly magically, you know, get wise and they stop doing these things. And man, maybe things just kind of level up. OK, yeah. So there's about like a 1% chance that that happens. There's about a 99% chance that disaster happens. Uh, but but it could be, could, we could be wrong. I, I, I always willing to admit I'm the first, but I could be wrong. Ted could be wrong. I don't think I am. I make the case. I guess it's up to the reader to decide as I'm making my case, man. I, I got no power. I can't do nothing. All I can do is make my case. You like it or you don't. Okay. I think events will bear me out and you'll probably come knocking on my door come 10 years from now. Uh, but eh, I could be wrong. So I'm, I'm prepared to be wrong. That's I actually hope I'm wrong. <laughs> I mean, this is bad news. I like, I would love to be wrong. I mean, I got kids, you know, probably have grandkids. I'd like to be wrong. So, so, you know, world prove me wrong. I'd be happy. Yeah. Look, Cohen and I are in the same boat, right? We've got a podcast centered around the fact that society is going to collapse and nobody wants to hear that. Um, and so we get the same reaction all the time. I wonder if the kind of questions that Kellen's asking here, and, and if he's not, I'm going to ask it. I, I wonder if it's not that people think that you're wrong necessarily, that there aren't more people doing what you're doing. Could it be that people don't want to touch the topic because the only thing they know about the topic is Ted Kaczynski? He was the one that got it out there. He was the one that made it public, but he did it in such an atrocious way that people couldn't agree with, people couldn't be on board with that They said, I'm not touching this topic. I'm not putting my career on the line for that. It's possible. I mean, even though that's starting to fade into history a little bit, I mean, it was, uh, what was it? So 25, 30, pushing 30 years ago. Uh, you know, I remember, you know, recently, well, when I was at the end of my time at Michigan, I was teaching my students and the students like, who's this guy? What? what? I, I didn't even know. I mean, they weren't even born. <laughs> when the when the Unabomber Manifesto came out, so I mean, this is like ancient history to anybody who's a college student today. So you got to be sort of like my age and up, or when you have a really sort of a clear understanding. And maybe you guys do a little bit, little bit. I don't know. You were you were probably what ten years old or something. You maybe vaguely remember these kind of things, right? So I mean, you know, all this stuff, like everything, everything sort of fades into history. Kaczynski himself is quite old. He's pushing eighty. Uh, there's some stories about he may have some kind of a a terminal illness and he, you know, one way or another, he ain't going to be around much longer. So pretty soon he'll be dead and gone. It'll be 30 plus years in the past and people, you know, the older guys are going to die out and it's going to be left to the future generations. And, and, and the people will, they'll either not have those immediate reactions because they won't know the story. They didn't live through the 30 years of male bombings. They weren't, they weren't, you know, bombarded with all these, you know, bad news stories. So it'll just be an old history for a lot of people. And then, and then I guess maybe that's one hope if I want to be a little bit optimistic, you know, at some point, Kaczynski's gone, the older guys die off, the younger generations come and they're like, well, okay, yeah, it was bad, but now we're going to look at the arguments because it's our future. So I'm, I'm hoping maybe, maybe that distaste sort of fades with time and then we can just say, well, look, the arguments are still there. We've got the same problems. Well, whether you like the distasteful aspects or not, 
you still got the problems. So you can either deal with them or you can just pretend they ain't there and then just keep your fingers crossed. And then, you know, then you're going to get screwed. So, yeah. David, this has been fascinating. We really appreciate you taking the time. You know, I look towards the future. I hope we can find a way to ease off of technology and, um, you know, find a way to, to hit a sustainable level. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thank, thank you. Glad to be here. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.